Well, as we begin the message, I would ask if you would uh, bow your hearts with me as we uh, pray. Father in heaven, we gather here this morning uh, again in the name of Jesus, anticipating what you will do in this time. Uh, I pray that the words that I speak and the hearts and the meditations of all that are gathered here this morning would be truly pleasing in your sight. O God, who has come into this world to become one of us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We ask you now by the power of your Spirit to teach us, to mold us, to shape us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, there was a Texas farmer, and actually a rancher, that went to Mexico. And when he was in Mexico, he came across a Mexican farmer, and they entered into a conversation. And and the Texas rancher turned to the Mexican farmer and said, well, Mr. Martinez, tell me, how big is your farm? And the Mexican farmer said, well, you know, if you look down at the end of the street, way down at the end of town, you see that stop sign down there? He says, my farm is about that long, and then again as wide. That would be the size of my farm. And the Texas rancher says, well, Mr. Martinez, would you like to know how big my ranch is? He's like, yeah, I would. He says, well, if I got in my car at 8 o'clock in the morning and I drove till 5 o'clock at night, I still wouldn't be at the end of my ranch. And the Mexican farmer says, I know exactly what you mean. I used to have a car just like that. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, a, it's about perspective. I mean, the, the t- Texas rancher wanted to compare ranches, right? He wanted to compare farms. And, and the Mexican farmer really wanted to kind of like see how they were similar. And uh, it was all about perspective. And we see a perspective here that maybe the rancher's trying to say that maybe he's more important because his ranch is larger. And that's what happens when we kind of fall into that, you know, that because we're the majority or because we have more, that we have a better perspective or that we're better. And as we deal with this issue of racism, that's really what's at work here. Whenever you marginalize, whenever you're prejudiced or you discriminate or have animosity toward another people group or people because of their race with the idea that your race is the superior race, that's racism. And Scripture's very black and white that that is just not acceptable. Jesus came for all, not just for a particular race. It's a black and white issue, but it's not just a black and white issue, is it? It's an issue that crosses all races. We see it everywhere. We even see it in the church today. And it can have a very disastrous effect to the mission of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to look at today. How racism has derailed the mission of Jesus Christ. How it's hurt the mission of Jesus Christ. And to do that, I'd like to look at a story in the book of Acts, written by uh, Luke. And it's in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts that we come across a story where there's this division in this young church. And if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd ask and encourage you to open them. Maybe you can open them on your phones. But I'm going to read from Acts chapter 6, those first first seven verses. Luke writes, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, 
and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from, from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed, their, laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We see this division in the church along these lines. There's Hellenistic Jews and there's Hebraic Jews. And the Hellenistic Jews are leveling an accusation that the widows, the Hellenistic widows, aren't getting their proper care. Every day the church would distribute food and care to the widows in their midst. But what was happening here was those widows that were Hellenistic were being discriminated against. They weren't getting their fair share. The difference between these two people groups is just really simple. It's language. That's all it is. It's language. The Hellenistic Jews spoke Greek. They studied the scriptures in Greek. The Hebraic Jews spoke Aramaic and studied the scriptures in Hebrew. And they were discriminating against the lesser. There would have been fewer Hellenistic Jews in this community. It would have been primarily Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem. But yet, the smaller population is being discriminated against. And they come to the disciples and say, there's a problem. There's discrimination going on here in our midst. And we see how they handle this problem head on. Now, I have to admit that if someone were to come to me and tell me, I think there's a problem, there's a division, that there's this division in your church, that there's this racist problem in you or in your church, I think chances are knee-jerk reaction for me, first inclination for me might be to just stiffen up. Maybe not to be so pliable or introspective, but to maybe defend my position or deny my position or to blame somebody else. Those are typically our responses when we're confronted with this issue. We do usually one of three things. The first thing we'll do is we'll defend, right? We'll stiffen up our backs and we'll defend our position that what we're doing is right, that what we're doing isn't wrong. And we'll try to find some convoluted way of denying what it is that they've said by defending our current position as the right position. You've got the wrong position. The second way we do that is we do deny it. There's no problem. There really isn't a problem. I don't have a problem. It's a perceived problem on your part, right? The church is not racist. Come on, we're the church. It doesn't exist here. Seems silly to say that, right? But we do that. Not really an issue. Or we blame. That's the third thing that we'll do. We'll blame somebody else. The problem isn't me. The problem is you. If you just quit talking about this, it'd go away. Right? But you keep talking about it, and that's why the problem persists. It's your problem. It's not my problem. And if we're honest with one another, we would say this is typically our knee-jerk reaction to be confronted with racism, or sin for that matter. We defend, we deny, or we blame. And it does nothing 
to heal the problem. It does nothing to address the issue. And we see in this story a great example of how we handle division. And so we want to look a little bit deeper to see how did they actually handle this issue. And we get a great example here in this text in Acts of how the apostles handled it. See, it was going on in their midst, and this other group came to the apostles and said, hey, you're responsible for this, and this is going on underneath your watch. And instead of blaming, defending, or denying, they took responsibility because they stopped what they were doing. And what they were doing was preaching the word and making disciples, and we see that that was working, and God was adding to their number daily. But they're saying, this is a problem, so what? We're going to stop what we're doing right now because this problem, this division, has the potential to derail the mission of Jesus Christ. It's that important. And so they stop what they're doing and they gather everyone together. It says they gathered all the disciples together. When you study this, you find out that they, scholars believe that between 20 and 25,000 disciples existed in Jerusalem at that time. So they gathered them all together and said, this issue has the potential to divide us. And the last thing we want to do is to be distracted from the mission of Jesus Christ. We want to handle the issue so that we can get back to doing what God has called us to do. But we can't do that by ignoring the problem or acting like it doesn't exist. And so that's why we of a church have said, we want to gather everybody together and talk about this issue because it is an issue. We can't deny that it's an issue in our culture. We can't deny that it's not an issue in our church. So we take example from the disciples and we gather everyone together to talk about an issue that has the potential and has had the effect of derailing and just diminishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what they do is they gather everybody together and they say it's a problem and they address the problem by assigning this problem to seven men. They gather people together and they say, we're looking for men that are filled by the Spirit and wisdom. We don't want to just hand it off to anyone. We want to make sure this doesn't happen again because if it happens again, it has the potential to just crumble things. So they appoint seven men. And the interesting thing is, all seven of them have Greek names. And they appoint them to make sure this doesn't happen again. And it said, and everybody was pleased. And they went back to preaching the word. How great would that be, right? That we could all gather together, point out the issue, and all agree and be pleased with the decision. It seems impossible, doesn't it? But didn't, it wasn't impossible here. It said they all agreed. And there's far less than 25,000 together here in this church. And so we can see a great example here with the apostles. They take responsibility. They say, yeah, it should have been our responsibility. We should have been looking at this. So we're going to make sure it doesn't happen again so that we can do what it is we've been called to do. Because what they're really saying here is that the most important thing is the mission of Jesus Christ. It's the preaching of the word. It's the spreading of the gospel. That's the most important thing. But we understand that there are differences in people groups. There are differences here in our community. And those differences can cause divisions. But we want to ensure those divisions don't happen so that the mission 
goes on. And that's exactly what happened. They didn't deny it. They said, yeah, there are differences. They didn't say, wait a minute, you're all Jews. There's no Hellenists and there's no Hebraic. They're, they're all Jews. No, there are different people that speak different languages, that look different. And they didn't deny that. But they said that ultimately, the main goal, the highest order of business is the mission of Jesus Christ. But all these things can become distractions, can become divisions, and have disastrous effects on the mission of Jesus Christ. And so they gathered everybody together and said, guess what? We're going to fix it. We're not going to deny it. We're not going to defend our actions because, yeah, we should have been looking over it. But we're going to take care of the issue so it doesn't happen again. And it was another thousand years or so before there was a great division in the church. But in the meantime, God's word has spread dramatically and it continues to spread throughout the world because there are groups of people and churches around the world that have said, we're not going to be divided. We're going to be united. We're not going to ignore these things. And we as a church have said the same thing. We're not going to ignore the problem in our midst. We're not going to deny it. We're not going to act like it doesn't happen, that we don't have the problem. We're going to look inside. We're going to look at ourselves and say, you know what? It's a problem. It's an issue. And to do that, we need to really get a better perspective of things. We need to have a better perspective than just our own to understand it. Have any of you seen this new show that's on NBC? Timeless? Any big fans? Right, Greg? Big fan. It's a history lesson every time. Right? They have historic advisors on the show. And they're making sure that what they teach is historically accurate. Because what happens in the show is there's time travel. They've invented this device that allows people to travel back in time, around in time. And the guy there at the bottom, you see, the sinister-looking guy there at the bottom, he's stolen one of these machines. And he's gone back in time to change history because he doesn't like the way things have turned out now. And so he's going to go back in time to change history, which can have disastrous effects on the present. And so they've sent those other three above him to go back in time in another machine to stop him. But the interesting thing that's, that has transpired, you see, that I want to point out in this show, it's not just how cool the show is historically, and it is, but what you see happen in these three characters. See a Caucasian male, African-American male, and a woman traveling back in time, traveling back into the 1920s, back into the 1860s, back into Nazi Germany. And what they experience is how much more marginalized people groups and races were then. We've read about it, heard of it, but now they're literally walking in the footsteps of someone in the 1860s and experiencing it completely different. All three of them are seeing things from a completely different perspective. And what they're coming to realize, you see, is that some of the perspectives that they held, even though they thought they were diverse, now they're finding out, wow, I had no clue. I had no clue this was going on, or this is the way I saw things, that I didn't see things clearly. That I really had a narrow view of things. I thought I was broad-minded, but now I'm seeing things more clearly. And that's what we need to understand, is that not just one perspective matters. There's no one people group that has a full perspective of the gospel. There is no one people group that has a complete understanding of God or of mankind. 
And that's exactly what Paul said in his letter to the Corinthian church. When he used this metaphor of the body to describe what it is to be a part of the church. To get us to understand what it means to be diverse. And how that diversity is a benefit to the church. I want to read to you from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. If you've got your Bibles, again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 12. Verse 12 in chapter 12. Paul writes, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you who are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it, and God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles and second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. All have been put in the body by Christ. Paul gives us this picture of the human body to describe what it is to be a part of the body of Christ. And there are all different parts. All have different responsibilities. All have been uniquely gifted. The story in Acts, we see there are apostles. And there are those that will take care of the widows. But we have equal concern for one another. Different responsibilities with unique gifts. But all are considered equal. And we consider one another equally. And we're to have concern for one another equally. We see from what Paul has said that every part of the body, every one of us, has a unique place in the body and a unique perspective. If I were to say to all of you, as he said, if I'm an eye and all of you need to be eyes, that's the way to see things correctly. Paul's saying, no, you're being short-sighted. Because what about the ear? What about the hand? What about the feet? They see things differently. You're only seeing things from one perspective. You need the perspective of every part of the body to gain a full understanding about who God is and how everyone in the body is needed 
for the body. So every part of the body has a complete understanding of who God is, has an understanding from their perspective, but they lack a perspective that someone else in the body has. But others in the body have a perspective of their own, but they lack the perspective of others. And so while we have a true understanding, at the same time we may have a false understanding about what God is and who God is and who the church is and what the mission is. He's warning us not to just have this narrow sense of the mission of God that everything is really decided by the majority, the most important part of the body. And everything else is sort of secondary. C.S. Lewis captures this image, I think, really great in his book titled The Four Loves. And he's telling a story in this section called Friendship, and he's describing this situation where there are three friends, and one of the friends dies. And he has this understanding. He gains a fuller perspective of both friends as a result of the death of one friend, and he writes it like this. He said, in each of my friends, there is something that only the other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. He goes on to say, And this friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, Holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. You hear what C.S. Lewis is saying, what Paul is saying? That when we lose a part of the body, we lose a perspective, we lose an experience of who God is. We lose a fuller understanding of the gospel. My wife and I were talking about this. We said, you know, with our kids, we have three children and our middle child, Alex, brings out a different aspect in our youngest child, Emily, than our oldest child, Catherine, brings out. So when the two of them together, we see parts of Emily, we see parts of her personality that only Alex can bring out, that we ourselves can't bring out of her. And there are things in Alex that Emily brings out that Catherine can't. And there are things that Alex brings out in Catherine that Emily can't. And he's saying that when, when you lose one of those, you lose a part of that person. You lose that perspective that only that person can give you. And when we exclude parts of the body, when we exclude along racial lines, we're losing a perspective of Jesus Christ that we can only have through that perspective. When we say, this is the way Jesus is, we're really, really only marginalizing him and the gospel. Because it takes all perspectives to gain a true understanding of who God is. And what the mission is. That's exactly what the disciples knew. Why were they so good at it? Because they had a great teacher. Right? He hung out with people that were marginalized. 
He spent time with people who had been set aside, told that they were less than. Their opinion didn't count. He spent time with prostitutes and with adulterers and races that were considered to be less than. Remember, there were the Jews and then there was everybody else. They saw their rabbi, the one true God, who should have been glorified among, above everyone else, be marginalized and put to death. To quiet him. Because he wanted to say that God came for all mankind, not just the chosen people. And the disciples themselves were marginalized. The disciples themselves were the minority in Jerusalem. There might have been twenty to 25,000, but they were definitely the minority and they were persecuted. And at the end of chapter 6 and then 7, we see that one of the men that they assigned to take care of the Hellenistic and the Hebraic widows, Stephen, was martyred, was put to death for proclaiming Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. The majority raised up and said, not today. We don't want to hear what you have to say. And so we as a church have to take notice of what the disciples did in the midst of being confronted with this division in their midst. We as a church, we must take notice. We cannot deny it any longer. We can't defend our position. We can't ignore it. We can't blame others. Say it doesn't exist here. If you just stop talking about it, we take care of itself. The mission of Jesus Christ is way too important. And it requires all perspectives so that we can gain a fuller understanding of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. So that the world would come to know him. So that more and more people would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because that's exactly what happened as a result of them addressing the issue. We see in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Amongst the majority, it grew. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. By not shrinking away from the issue, by addressing the issue, doing something to rectify it, to learn from our teacher the divisiveness of marginalizing people or people groups, that racism has no place in the church. Admitting it. Working to rectify it for the mission. Because the mission is what we're about. It's helping more and more people look, live, and love like Jesus so that lives are changed, communities are changed, and the world is changed. So that more and more people would come to know that God has made a way for all mankind to be reconciled to the Father. And as a result, the Word of God continued to increase throughout the world. Not just throughout the world, but within the disciples. Their hearts grew in their understanding and their experience of what the gospel was as they witness to more and more diverse people groups. They gained a fuller and fuller understanding of what it was to be a part of the body and how the body could be a powerful tool in the mission of Jesus Christ by being united underneath the mission of Jesus Christ. And understanding that we need diversity. Diversity is to be celebrated, not to ignore it, 
but to try and seek the perspective of one another to gain a fuller understanding of who God is and who the gospel is. We need to stop marginalizing the gospel and one another and get about the business of preaching the word. But we can't ignore the problem. We need to address it. I pray that as you continue to come in this series, next week we're going to talk about it a little bit more. What do we do as a church? What are our steps? What is it that we need to do as a church to address the problem? Dan will be here next week to talk about that. This week I'd really love for you to pray and consider how God, asking Him to soften your heart, cannot get a stiff neck, stiff back. When you hear about these issues in the news, when you read about them in the papers, when you confront about them on social media, not to just stiffen your back and want to marginalize a different people group, but to sit there and really ask the Lord to show you in your own heart where you're marginalizing others, where you're raising your position, your viewpoint, your perspective above everyone else. That you're the one that's right and everybody else is wrong. If everybody could just see that, we'd all just get along. But we know that's not the case. So this week, I would ask you to pray and ask God to soften your heart, to open your eyes and to increase your knowledge of him, to grow his word in your heart. And come back next week as we continue to address this, and we'll address this in different ways throughout the year because the mission of Jesus Christ is that important that we don't ignore it. I pray God blesses you as you seek him, as you study him, as you follow him. Amen. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, reconciler of the entire world, Thank you that you did not marginalize me. I thank you that you went to great lengths to reconcile me. Thank you that you love me, that you thought enough of us to send your son and to give us such an important mission. Father, that you would use imperfect people, people who come before you this morning confessing that we marginalize people, that we do exactly what we're not supposed to do. But your word reminds us that you've used imperfect people from the time the world began to accomplish your mission, and that you continue to accomplish your mission using imperfect people. And then you bring those imperfections together to give us a fuller understanding of you, a fuller picture of who you are, to give us a greater understanding of the importance of your mission here in this world. Why you would do that, Father, I don't know, but that's your plan. And your Spirit testifies to that plan in our hearts and reminds us that you love us, that you've called us, and that you love all people groups and all people. Father, we ask you to continue to grow our hearts, to grow our knowledge of you, to grow our love of you and your mission. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ? Or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T. L-C.
the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.